tuned in to the R1 News, your stop for news and current affairs on the airwaves. 11 to 12 weekdays here on Radio 191 FM. Te reo irirangi kōtahi. Tēnā koutou i tēnei āta. This is the R1 News here on Radio 1. Ko Seb Aho. Ko Nico Aho. And we'll be taking you through the news here on Ratu. It is the 14th of June. Coming up on the show i tēnei rā, we have, uh, we have the news. Actually, we only have the weather. Following that, we'll be talking live to Wattie Watson about why the NZPFU, New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union, is going on strike. And after this, we'll be joined live by Bronwyn McNoe, a melanoma expert, who'll talk to us about New Zealand's concerning melanoma rates and the lack of government investment to prevent widespread skin cancer rates. Finally, we have a pre-record interview where we talk to Andrew Cushion, an expert on internet policy, speaking to us about National's latest gang policy to ban gang insignia across social media platforms and whether this is an effective approach to censoring harmful content online. And then finally, to wrap up, we speak with Andy, live on this week's Creature of the Week, where we are talking skinks. But before all that, here is today's weather, brought to you by Service. The R1 News Weather. Today in Dunedin there will be rain at times, strong southwesterlies, gales near the coast, snow is possible around the hills. Currently it is 6 degrees but it feels like 4. There is also a strong wind watch. This is especially around the coastal Dunedin area and the Clutha region. Southwest winds may approach severe gale in exposed places. There will be a high of 10 and a low of 4. That is the weather. Coming up, we have our first live interview with Wattie Watson of the uh, New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union on the fire crisis New Zealand professional firefighters are facing and their move to strike. But before all that, we're going to play you a song. This is by Brazilian artist Sio, and it's called Reina.
That was Raina by Stu, and it is currently nine minutes past 11, and we are moving into our first live interview. The New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union began to strike yesterday on Monday the 13th of June. This strike stands to fight for more fair wages and safer work systems. The New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union is protesting against FENS, Fire and Emergency New Zealand. The NZPFU wants FENS to recognise that the current pay structure leaves professional career firefighters poorly paid compared to their counterparts further wanting FENS to properly address serious health, safety and well-being concerns. We are speaking to Wattie Watson, National Security uh, Secretary for the NZPFU. Let's bring them in now. Kia ora, Wattie. Are you there? Hi. Thank you so Keep much for here. joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And so we're just going to launch into a couple questions about this strike. So to start off, the strike commenced yesterday, and this strike, from our understanding, is to fight for more fair wages and safer working conditions and systems, and more specifically, the want for FENS to recognise the inequalities in the pay structure for firefighters in comparison to their counterparts in the emergency and, f- and frontline workforce. But could you tell us a bit more about why the NZPFU is on strike? So we've been in bargaining with FENS since uh, June 2021, and they produced an offer on the 8th of April, which we took out to all our membership. We held 29 meetings around the country, and 99% of our members uh, uh, at those meetings voted uh, down FENS's offer. The FENS's offer fails in so many ways. It fails to address the very low wages that firefighters currently have. Uh, the lower ranks uh, barely paid the adult minimum wage and the offer that they've given really only scrapes them across that uh, the new adult minimum wage. Um, the, the firefighters don't fit into the normal public service system of job sizing and then comparing those jobs with like corrections and justice and other public sector jobs because no one really does what they do. The nearest comparative is the Australian firefighters who work uh, in very similar they work in the same types of crews, crew numbers. They respond to the same types of issues. They have very similar uniform and trucks and appliances, um, and they are very comparable. Interestingly enough, firefighters are at least 40%, up to 60% paid less than their Australian counterparts. Yet FENS's administration staff and other jobs such as IT and finance and administration, etc., they're paid pretty much on... I'll take a few... Senators um, with their Australian counterparts. In FENS's most upper management, some of them are paid uh, way more than their Australian counterparts. So that proves for firefighters and something needs to happen. In addition, there are other massive issues that um, also affect the community. That is safe staffing systems. There are not enough firefighters uh, employed currently to maintain the required minimum staffing. And that's even just at the store, the 1990s level of staffing. We haven't even got to talk about how that staffing needs to address the changes in New Zealand since 1990. In addition, firefighters uh, since 2013 have been responding to the most serious of medical response calls. So if uh, someone stopped breathing or in danger in a life-threatening situation, FEMS is called. And uh, that includes, you know, child death, uh, cot death, um, suicides, um, uh, you know, cardiac arrest, etc. Yeah, and all FEMS responds, FEMS firefighters respond to 96% of all of outer hospital uh, 
life-threatening situations like that. Yeah, I did see that because I I guess along with other just citizens assume that the firefighters do play a very critical role and it's unfortunate that it's not being recognised in that that extent with pay and also just the structure and staffing. But yeah, I had no idea, according to the St John's data, that firefighters respond to 96% of hospital cardiac arrests. So... And it's sad it's not being ruminated for this work. Is there hoping to be structural change in response to this where firefighters will have more of a streamlined like call and response? Um, what are you hoping? So firefighters, yeah, so firefighters in 2018, when the last agreement was negotiated in 2018, FEMS agreed to look at the uh, medical response and to recognise the impact of that on firefighters. And they have failed to do that in the term of this agreement. We put up um, ideas and solutions during the term of the agreement and uh, they've just refused those. So what we need is twofold. We need that to recognise, remunerate, proper remuneration because they never got paid anything different or more for doing medical response and it's now a huge part of their response. Secondly, the impact of that response must be recognised and uh, provided for. So firefighters, you know, uh, there are some stations where firefighters are going to, to two or more deaths a day. Two or more deaths a day. And FENS has currently no programs to deal with, uh, to train them in their resilience, to train them in their own personal identification of mental health programs. And there's a wealth of these programs internationally uh, designed for firefighter trauma. And uh, they're refusing to pick those up. In addition, uh, the FEMS, uh, they do have access to psychologists, but it is a battle to get there. And FEMS, essentially, once you've been to a psychologist for three um, visits, it is then another battle to keep that going. Now, that should be automatic. FEMS needs to automatically provide the necessary um, uh, preemptive work and programs for firefighters' mental health and the 111 call centres. They're, of course, traumatised. They're on the end of the line uh, helping the people through the most terrible part of the time of their lives, waiting for the response. And also, um, at the other end, you know, the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff stuff, where they are incredibly unwell um, and need proper um, professional support. Um, their EAP program, their counselling program, is, is actually dangerous for firefighters because those counsellors are not trained in the type of trauma that firefighters experience. So these are the matters that FEMS needs to come to the table and deal with. And just an example of really the, um, the way in which FEMS devalues and disrespects um, our membership, uh, they automatically provide income protection insurance or their HQ staff, their management staff and their administration staff. Yet they're refusing to uh, pay for an allowance for our membership to support them in, in obtaining the proper income protection and medical insurance they need. to address them because it's just so multifaceted in the ways where firefighters are understaffed and not ruminated properly and are not looked after or properly counselled or in fact like, there's no systems in place to actually properly run the program. We are unfortunately out of time to further discuss this but this is providing, thank you so much for joining us, this is providing great insight into the level of the complexities and the need to address this and why it's so important 
that the NZPFU is on strike. Just to quickly wrap up, what are you hoping to achieve out of this strike? And perhaps is there more awareness now to the fire crisis and hopefully a need for a response from FNZ in response to this because it is such a huge issue? Absolutely. FINS needs to come to the table. We've got mediation set down for Thursday. Uh, it's just been confirmed today, which is fantastic. They need to come to the table with a different attitude, with respect um, and with an offer that values our membership and the work that they do. And if the public, it is a complex, you're quite right, there's a multifaceted uh, problems going on because FINS has lost its way. It no longer has its focus on the response to the community. So if your listeners want to know some more, they could go to www.firecrisis.nz and there's lots of information in there about all the different issues that the, our membership are facing. Thank you so much and thank you for joining us. That is Wattie Watson, the National Secretary for the NZPFU. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see, and now we're moving into our song uh, with Aldous Harding with Lawn.
Koto, my name is Seb and you are listening to the R1 News here on Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi Radio 1. Uh, the time is 25 minutes past 11 and that song you just heard then was by Homeshake. It was called Call Me Up. We're now moving into our second live interview of the show. Uh, recent studies have shown that Australia and New Zealand have the highest incidence of melanoma in the world. Every year in New Zealand, 4,000 people are diagnosed with melanoma and more than 350 people die, which is significantly more than our road deaths. This high incidence of melanoma can be attributed largely to the high ambient UV radiation to which Australians and New Zealanders are exposed, coupled with a high proportion of fair skin residents with European ancestry. Although the two countries share similar rates of skin cancer, a recent study in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health has suggested that New Zealand lags behind Australia in virtually every dimension of skin cancer prevention, including government investment and supportive legislation. Dr. Bronwyn McNoe is a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Otago and Co-Director of the Social and Behavioural Research Unit within the Department of Preventative and Social Medicine. Dr. McNoe has been a public health researcher for over 30 years and completed her PhD in 2020, which was focused on the primary prevention of skin cancer in educational settings. She joins me now. Kia ora, Bronwyn, are you there? Kia ora, yes I am. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. So, Bronwyn, uh, melanoma rates are showing signs of slowing in Australia. Uh, The same, unfortunately, can't be said for here in Aotearoa. Uh, What is it exactly that the Aussies are doing that we're failing to do here? Sure. Um, So the Australians have invested a lot of money in prevention of skin cancer since the 1980s. 
um, and they're now seeing the benefit of that. So they have comprehensive programs with at least some government funding in educational settings, workplaces, recreational areas. Um, they have an outright ban on commercial sunbeds. They have regulated sunscreen. All the standards on sun protective products in Australia are mandatory. They have campaigns um, encouraging individuals to be sun smart every year. Um, they have capital um, shade grants available for schools and community groups. Um, if you compare that to um, New Zealand, it's hard to know where to start. So we're behind in virtually every area. So although we initially invested in skin cancer prevention campaigns in the 1990s, um, that's no longer the case. Um, so if you look at government investment around um, 2000, we were spending about a million dollars a year. Um, that's now down to less than 500,000. Um, there's only one national program, that's the SunSmart Schools program, and that's entirely delivered by the Cancer Society, and which is under extreme pressure now because of a lack of funding. Um, we allow uh, sunbed use and those aged 18 years and older in terms of campaigns, there's very minimal um, number of campaigns and they're largely um, delivered by commercial entities like sunscreen manufacturers. Most of our standards are voluntary rather than mandatory and there's no available funding for schools to install shade in their playgrounds. Um, they have to fundraise for that. So we're just simply not investing enough in what is an extremely expensive um, cancer to treat. And we know what it causes it, we know how to prevent it, and we know that the way to prevent it is relatively straightforward. We're just not putting the investment into that. That's shocking, Bronwyn. It is um, shocking. It is shocking. I, it, it's, it's, it's confusing as to how we even got to this stage. I mean, uh, you, you quoted that we're only spending about f under 500000 on skin cancer prevention, or a similar figure. But I, I've got a stat in front of me here that says uh, it's costing our health system $57 million a year every year in New Zealand. Um, well, that's, just, that's actually just melanoma. So if it's skin cancer, there's actually melanoma and non-melanoma. It's more like $180 million a year. My gosh. So that's even worse. Both are caused by exposure to ultraviolet radiation. Um, if you compare that to, as you were saying, the road toll, um, just the uh, zero to, I can't remember the name of the, the campaign this year, um, but they had um, a campaign that they spent $5 million on, just one campaign, less debt. But, um, yeah, it just, it's just completely inadequate, the amount of investment what that is, we're putting into it. What is it that's led to this uh, regulatory um, failure? What? I mean, I think pressure from um, other diseases, um, the fact that we're not addressing equity because, of course, uh, um, skin cancer does largely affect people with fair skin. Um, I think people, a lot of people think that skin cancer is not serious. Um, of course, uh, uh, for the vast majority of people, will be fine. That's not to say there's no treatment cost associated with it, but unfortunately we do. We have 350 melanoma deaths and then another 150 uh, from other skin cancers. So th th there's, I guess there's a difference in... Um and preventative treatment and uh, or, or, or just pre prevention measures and then treatment after yes, cancer has been uh, contracted, after it's occurred. What yes. Are we doing both on bad... Are we doing terribly on both fronts? I, I mean... Uh, well, so, so um, I guess if you're comparing us to Australia, um, so if you looked at the recent Cancer Agency report, they named 20 um, treatment streams for cancer drugs that are treated in Australia, which aren't in New Zealand, and of those, four were for melanoma. So if you receive, if you unfortunately have a melanoma diagnosis in New Zealand, um, if you have stage four melanoma and it's your primary treatment um, as immunotherapy drugs, you'll receive funding for that. 
if you have an earlier stage melanoma or it's an adjunct therapy, you will have to pay for the treatment yourself, and that has a price tag of around $100,000. So, um, it, yeah, we're doing worse in treatment as well, I would have to say. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and, and what about sunscreen? Uh, it's, so sunscreen, it's twice yep, the price so, here than it is compared to sunscreen in Australia. Yeah, so, so there's it's a cost about barrier. The price in, in New Zealand as it is to Australia. So um, for for virtually all well, it is the same problem pro, uh, product. So usually the, the sunscreen is manufactured in Australia and exported to New Zealand. Um, so I guess there's additional distribution costs here. We're a smaller market and the the, the price is set by the manufacturer. But also in Australia, they remove the GST on their sunscreens, um, which we don't do here. And the affordability of a sunscreen is really of concern to organisations like the Cancer Society, because of course, um, for vulnerable communities, like it's too, just too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always try to emphasise that sunscreen is only one of five strategies to reduce your UV exposure. So of course, you can wear a hat, clothing, and using shade mm-hmm. are all good strategies as well. Um, of course, it's not the only way uh, no. to protect yourself from the sun. Um, I, I guess there are some pretty common sense uh, methods, and, and maybe maybe it would help to outline some of the ways to pr- to protect ourselves from the sun to help prevent skin cancer. But also, could you could you talk to us a bit about that? But a bit about what what we can do, what, how, who we can lobby to kind of get some movement on this issue. It's 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 re- it's really concerning that there's such little attention being paid to this yeah. New well, Zealand's I, I most guess expensive cancer. the lobbying is the usual, you know, the usual methods through your MP and, and so forth and we're, we're always lobbying very hard as well. It's quite difficult and it's always difficult for prevention in terms of, so if you've got somebody lobbying for a, a new drug, you know, they can put their patient up beside them that's suffering from whatever disease and that's very compelling. It's it's far more difficult to say, well, because this person wore a, a, a hat when they were at school, they didn't get a skin cancer. So it, that's always a problem for prevention. Um, uh, in terms of strategies you can use, of course, you can wear um, a broad-brimmed hat will provide good protection for um, your face and neck, which is where a lot of the at least non-melanoma skin cancers will develop. Um, long-sleeved clothing, collars, um, longer-style shorts or skirts, um, using shade where you can, um, where there's shade available, and also trying to stay out of the sun when the UV is really high, so mm. usually through the middle of the day um, in, in, in the middle of summer, you would try and stay out of the sun mm. during those times. Was that, oh, sorry, I'm not sure what the other question was. No, you've answered it perfectly. I, it's, it's kind of just what, what, can, what can the listener do to c- help bring about some awareness to this issue and, and, and to protect themselves from the sun, obviously? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so using those strategies to protect themselves from the sun, um, I guess just even just writing to your MP, is, uh, I mean, that, that really has, we need national leadership on this, I think, national investment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Thank, thank you so much um, for taking the time to come join us on the show, um, Bronwyn. It, it's yeah. It, as I said at the top of the the interview, it's it's shocking. Um, it's yeah. It's the most expensive cancer for the New Zealand health system, and there's just there's there's very little attention or investment being paid to it. Um, I, I've I was in, in doing research for this interview. I found that there are cities overseas, like Miami, for example, where there are free sunscreen dispensers across the city, and and that that has been trialled in cities like New York. Um, 
It would be cool to see this kind of thing happening in New Zealand. It would also be really cool to see this uh, cost barrier removed um, for poorer yeah, communities. Yeah, I, th- yeah. It's, cra- it's, it's twice as expensive to buy sunscreen in New Zealand than Australia, and it's the exact same product. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge shame. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, you've, you've, you've taught me something, and I hope we've taught the listener something as well. So thank you so much for joining me, Bronwyn. No problem at all. Awesome. Bye. Bye. That was... Uh, Bronwyn McNo, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Otago, um, outlining some of the reasons uh, why uh, New Zealand has the highest incident of, incidence of melanoma in the world and uh, why we unfortunately have um, some pretty poor investment into the issue when compared to our neighbours, Australia, who have been uh, quite hands-on in addressing, um, in address, uh, addressing a cancer that, that, that's costing their public health system quite a lot. Um, so I think we, we have a bit to learn. And, yeah, thank, thanks again, Bronwyn, for joining us. Uh, moving on, I'm going to play a song. Uh, and then we're going to be playing our pre-recorded feature, speaking uh, to Andrew Cushion about uh, the Nationals' latest policy to ban gang insignia from social media platforms. Um, but that will come in due time. Before that, we have Dee Stevens, a local artist, with his song The Wind, featuring Samisi Mayai. You're listening to R1 News.
You got it tuned to the R1 News Show here on Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi Radio 1. Uh, that song you just heard there was by a local artist D. Stevens. It was called The Wind and it featured Simisi Maiai. Uh, we're going to move into our uh, pre-recorded feature for today's show. Uh, National Party leader Christopher Luxon has announced a commitment to introduce tough anti-gang laws if brought to power next year. Sorry, something's going on. What is that? There we go. Sorry. National Party leader Christopher Luxon has announced a commitment to introduce tough anti-gang laws if brought to power next year. In a speech to party members at National's Northern Regional Conference, Luxon promised to give police new powers that would make life harder for criminal gangs. Luxon also announced that a national government would ban gang insignia from publicly accessible social media platforms alongside all public spaces. He said gangs were increasingly using social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram to market themselves and recruit young people, adding that he planned to target gangs online the same way violent extremists have been targeted and censored. On the subject of online censorship and how it relates to harmful online content, I spoke to Andrew Cushion, the inju- <coughs> excuse me the interim chief executive of Internet NZ, a not-for-profit organisation which supports the development of New Zealand's internet through policy, community grants and research. Here is our conversation. G'day, Andrew. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate that your time is valuable, so I just wanted to get a few uh, takes from you. Recently, national leader Christopher Luxon has said that if national are elected into power, they they plan to target gangs online in the same way that they've done with, uh, in the same way that has been done with violent extremists, uh, how they've been targeted and widely censored. In your opinion, is this uh, a viable approach to the issue of gangs? Well, I think there's some fundamental issues and challenges with the approach that National was talking about here on cracking down with gangs on social media. In the first instance, National's taking the wrong cues, potentially, out of the work on violent extremism. That's been focused on uh, stopping the spread of information after the fact, after terrorist incidents, but also raised a lot of questions about the algorithmic basis that content is shared to allow dark, festery corners to grow online. That's different here from an individuals-based or content-based explicitly approach that doesn't really share too much in the way of hallmarks with what we're talking about in terms of violent extremism and raises some pretty thorny issues about how, about the civil liberties consequences of that and about the fact that these are still people that have a right to be online and share things with, with, their, with their friends and associates. Can you do more to help explain the difference between an individual-based approach and content-based approach when it comes to censorship? Um, and is it a bit of a catch-22? Did neither of them really quite achieve the targets they, or, or in, in National's idea, you, you kind of mentioned that they're using the wrong approach. Um, they're, they're drawing from the violent extremism censorship, the, the kind of wrong conclusions. Um, but could you explain a bit more about what the different options are? Nobody wants to see this sort of harm spread online here. But there's a careful set of balances that have to be struck in all of these areas between a freedom of expression and limiting of the harm-based approaches. And that's why ongoing conversations about the role of platforms to stop algorithmic-driven deepening of harm is so important. It's actually a bigger challenge and a bigger question than just specifically gang-related issues. On the gang-related challenges that this raises, what 
I see that either a content-based approach could be taken or an individual one. An individual one's the easiest to describe. Seb, I know you're a gang member, therefore I'm going to stop you from posting things without seeing it first. And I know you're not a gang member, Seb, but you see what I mean here in terms of well, how, what have you done aside from the fact of being allegedly a member of a gang to warrant that sort of personal censorship being applied to you? Mm. That doesn't stack up. Mm. On a content-based approach, what are we looking for? Now, they've said that you can't display gang patches, but those things take a variety of different forms. So instead, are we actually talking about the use of certain words now that are censored? Mm. What if somebody like me shares a New Zealand Herald article that Mm. often uses gang patches in their imagery on social media? Mm. Would I be caught in a drift net like that? They've also said in the policy that tattoos won't be caught in this proposed policy. But what if your tattoo is of a gang patch, so to speak? Hasn't the same thing be achieved? Mm. Content-based approaches work off a known list of images. How do you define the known list here? And how do you stop that dragnet from catching the wrong things mm. and the wrong people? Well, is it is it algorithmic or is it or is are there people hired to kind of identify this content uh, and, and and flag it? You, you know, who's deciding um who's deciding on the censorship is it is it is it is it ai or is it or is it people who have the ability to discern between harmful and maybe harmless content it's a really good question um and it's one of the big questions in the bigger picture piece about online extremism here we can't really throw people at this right uh, across the across the social media landscape I've seen statistics before that talk about how there are billions of pieces of content created each day. We, we don't possibly have enough people to throw at an active moderation stance across all of that. And even when we do throw people inside active content, uh, content management, you see some of the horrible stories come out in terms of what the life and condition is like for the people that have to, have to judge that particular material. Um, but AI isn't up to the task either. We don't have the technology to do this at scale. Um, and that's one of the big set of challenges. Algorithms are a piece of the puzzle here, but that's more relevant on the violent extremist stuff in terms of driving and building communities that feed people ever more extremist content that encourages them to do shitty things um, in the real world. That seems different here because we're talking about people presenting themselves as gang members and using that um, in order to foster and encourage and advertise the lifestyle and what they do. A really difficult thing to get on top of in this particular manner. Just digging into how censorship works at large, it's, it's a bit confusing and I'm unsure... How does it work when you're dealing with these large private corporations like Zuckerberg's Meta or TikTok? Is it as easy as just asking them not to show certain types of content in specific countries? How much, how much power do these companies have versus state power? And, and who's, you know, who, who's calling the shots? Well, largely who's calling the shots is social media. Um, and that's done on a global level according to their terms and conditions or community standards or the particular rule set that's been specifically designed by that social network themselves. And, yes, there are some hooks that nation states are trying to gain in terms of reflecting national interest in those pieces, but they're hard to do. They're particularly hard for New Zealand to do as a small country in the bottom of the world. There was this really particularly challenging matter a couple of years ago where 
a Google News alert shared information that was suppressed in New Zealand about a particular case that was before the courts. And all of a sudden, despite the fact that in New Zealand, that information was not allowed to be shared publicly, you had the global Google platform share the details that were otherwise suppressed in this country. Mm. So when we buy into social media at the moment, we're buying into a rule set that isn't ours. It's been written by those companies. And yes, credit where credit's due, these companies are trying to address these challenges in their way. There has to still be room for government to do this and do it better, right? And that's on the challenges of algorithmic transparency and how extremism is driven. That's not at the level of trying to clamp down on gangs posting pictures online. Mm -hmm. That's not the right approach for you to take on this. Andrew, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I think you're very learned on the topic and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you. Um, you can give me a call anytime though, bro. I'm happy to talk to you. Awesome, Andrew. That's great to know, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time once again. See you later. Happy Monday. See you later. If you're just joining us now, that was uh, Andrew Cushion, the Interim Chief Executive of Internet NZ, talking to us about the subject of online censorship uh, and how it relates to harmful online content just in the wake of the National Party's latest announcement that they, uh, if elected into power, they... They will look to ban all uh, gang insignia from publicly accessible social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram um, for fears that they're using these uh, platforms to recruit members. Um, it was a fascinating, fascinating conversation. And the fun fact about Andrew, he was actually an ex-president of the OUSA. Um, back in 2014. So just goes to show you where student politics can get you. He, uh, he is now the chief executive of Internet NZ. Uh, coming up on the show, we are talking to local zoologist in training, Andrew Johnson, about Grand and Otago skinks. Um, so fascinating yarns to come. But for now, this is uh, a Kiwi band cut off your hands with their song, Live for Each Other. Got to turn to the one.
This is the R1 News on Radio 1 91FM. Te reo irirangi kōtahi. Just Playing was Cut Off Your Hands by Live For Each Other. Now we're moving into our final segment of the show, one of our favourite segments as well, Creature of the Week with Andrew. Kia ora, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. We've all got the sniffles, it sounds like. Uh, yeah. But we're, we're coming here. But we are excited, however, to be talking about Grant and Otago Skinks. Yeah, me too. What are they? What are, are they? they? They're lizards. They're yes. lizards. They're and lizards. they are funky patterned. Yes. Yes. And they are, are also rare. Yes, they are. Oh my gosh. Yes. Every, yes to everything. They're amazing. They're, yeah. So they're very rare. They're one of the rarest species of lizard. The rarest species of lizard in New Zealand, and the largest. Mm. About thirty centimeters long. Whoa! I was like imagining like a like like a, a wheat. Whole, no one can see my finger right now by like holding <laughs> up like maybe ten centimeters tops. Yeah, yeah. Impressive. Whoa. Yeah, no. When I think of skinks, I think of the little guys as well. I exactly. Quite a bit bigger than the ones we find up in the North Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So these ones are, are, are like a big, big, big form. Um, a lot of their length is kind of in the tail. Oh, you yeah. usually find find these these things to be. But um, yeah, they're they're about thirty. They're twenty five to thirty centimeters long, I think, and they're just found here in our in our backyard. Gorgeous. So we're we're home to the largest uh, lizard species and rarest. You brought up the tail. Yes. I must ask. Of course. They fall off, don't they? They do. As a defense mechanism. Yeah. Amazing, right? Can you explain that? Of course. Yeah. So um, basically, uh, as a way to sort of detra- uh, distract any predators that come towards them, they can detach their tail. And then the predator will go for the tail instead of them, and then they might be able to have a chance at escaping. But it's not—it's not so good for the lizard if they detach the tail. No. It's, it's yeah. sort of a um, a trade-off because the tail is quite a large fat store for the lizard, so that's where they'll get like all their backup nutrients for if there's lack of food or over the winter times or anything like that. So they don't want to lose their tail, but, yes. but they can. How long does it take for it to regrow? I've I, always wondered that. I'm not actually 100% sure. I, I know that when every time it grows, it grows back shorter. Shorter. So oh. it's, never, it's never the same length every time. But uh, I'm not sure what the, so, what the average time is. Only so uh, much tail is. to go around. <laughs> I, well, that, that's interesting because I, fe- I feel like every... Maybe not. Uh, many young, inquisitive kids who mm. find a skink will mm. often be quite fascinated by it, touch it, and get it to lose its tail. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've, of course. I... I, I'm guilty of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh, yeah I will. But now I know never to do it again. It's it's where they store their fat. Yeah, yeah. They... So it's not yeah not the best for them, and okay. especially not for a, uh, a quite a rare lizard like the Otago skink, which is you know I, I was only like it was thought to be on the brink of extinction, like mm. until like in, in like the nineties. Like they, people only thought it had about ten years left to live. Oh my gosh. Which is which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And what is their like conservation story? Because they have increased in population slightly. Yes. Yes, yeah. they have. Yeah. So basically, yeah, like I said, like a '99s experiment said that they would be extinct from the decade, which was really like you know a wake up call. Eh? So then a 2005, 2008 experiment looked at a way that how can we help these guys? So they put them under a few different management processes. One was just to control, you know, do nothing. Another one was to have intensive predator trapping because these guys are attacked by a lot of mammalian predators that have been brought over, you know, our rats, our possums, our, our mice, all those kind of things. So intensive trapping. And the other thing they did was they had a big fence to um, keep all of these predators out of the area of, of where they're found. And they're often found in the McRae's Flat which is in Otago, which is just kind of north of Dunedin. Mm. Um, so they had these different management systems. And then basically from this, they found that they had a 90, uh, what was it, a 98%, I think, increase 
in population no because of these management systems. So it was a huge oh success, yeah, and it yeah, was yeah, this yeah. like amazing thing for not even just the Otago skink, but just for management of um, endangered species yeah. in New Zealand in general. It was this incredible way to say, hey, if we can get a hold of this, if we can get rid of predators, if we can put up a predator-proof fence, then we're going to be good. We can oh, we can wow. definitely help out endangered species. Well, it shows hope yeah. for the future, right? It really, yeah, it really does. Yeah, yeah, because because these guys are only really found on um, on on rocky. Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to pronounce this correct. Schists. Schists. Yeah, schists. Careful. Definitely don't want to don't want to pronounce that incorrectly <laughs> on the radio. Uh, rocky schists, where it's just basically little rocky outcroppings where there's different lichen and whatnot on it. So those kind of yellowy um, tinted moss things, and they um, a tiger skink pattern reflects that. So they're kind of a dark kind of color with these mottled greens and mottled yellows and whatnot on Gorgeous. top, which is really pretty, yeah. So, um, sorry, where do they live? The, under rocks? Yes, yeah, yeah. So schists. In schists, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we see schist, yeah, yeah. we should stay Well, if you, if you go out into the Otago area, you quite often see those sort of like flat rocks that are everywhere. So yeah. uh, these little groups of rocks are actually called a tor, a T-O-R, tor. And that's where you'll find a lot of these lizards because they're cold-blooded, right? Mm-hmm. So what a cold-blooded animal often has to do is bask in the sun to regain its its heat because animals like you and I, we can regulate our own body temperature, but cold-blooded animals can't, so they have to rely on their environment around them to keep themselves at an optimal temperature. So they bask on these rocks, which will often stay warm long after the sun is gone. It's kind of crazy Hot for shift. Dunedin as well, which yeah. is just so cold most of the time. Yeah, exactly. I just saw you smiling the entire time waiting to say that. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, and what are some other funky facts about these lizards and, like, I guess both the Grand and Otago skinks? Yeah, um, well, their, their name in, in Te Maori is the Mokomoko, which is sort of because of their very distinctive markings. Um, and, yeah, now because they, back in the day there was only four to be, like, below 50 of them, now we have about 2,000 of each species. Wow. Which is really great. The fantastic such a success thing. story. It's, it's amazing, right? Yeah. And so I think that's just really a really awesome way to, to like, show that, that there's, there's hope. And, and yeah, they're, they're classified as uh, naturally critically endangered, which is about as critically endangered as you can get in New Zealand. But there is a possibility that we can um, decrease that threat level um, to just naturally critical um, within the next 10 years, hopefully, due to these... Um, these practices but um in new zealand in general there's there's 126 species of um lizards and there's still lizards still being discovered actually crazy there was a lizard found not so long ago like about a month ago i think in in the otago region it blows my mind great. yeah we could we could discover a species theoretically we could go out and find something that big, big time big time big time yeah you go out there you might be able to find something but it's 2022 yeah no, we're still we're still looking we don't know we don't know everything but yeah and then also within new zealand we have um Sort of two different things. We have the skinks and we have geckos. Mm-hmm. So what we talk about today is the Otago skink. And skinks are very like slender and narrow, so they're 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 um That's snake-like. Yeah, very snake-like. Their necks and their heads are sort of the same same um like width and they're very like uh, smooth kind of fish-like scales. Whereas the gecko, that's more of your standard kind of lizard look. That's like a really big head, big eyes, like um kind of soft velvety scales, um, and very small. So those are two kind of species we have. Here in New Zealand. Gorgeous. Hey, well, Andy, thank you once again, mate, for coming and informing us about such a fascinating creature. And, yeah, go the skink, man. That's so amazing that we thought they were going to be extinct within Mm -hmm. 10 years in 1990, and now they're back to somewhat healthy population. A far better position. Far better position. Yeah, yeah, and on the rise, hopefully. Big time. Yes, no, and after people hear about them on Creature of (laughs) the (laughs) Week, they're definitely going to want to explode. Conservation.
Well, that brings us to the end of our show for Ratu 14th of June. Thank you all for joining us. But before we go, let's quickly recap what we have covered today. Let's wrap up. Yeah. Should we? Okay, well, I spoke to Wati Watson, the National Secretary for the NZPFU, about the firefighting crisis New Zealand is currently facing and the strike that the union is holding in response to it. And then after that, I talked to Bronwyn McNoe, a melanoma and skin cancer expert who talked to us about New Zealand's concerning melanoma rates and the lack of government investment to prevent this widespread skin cancers. And then finally, uh, we had a pre not finally, sorry, after that we had a pre-recorded interview where uh, I talked to Andrew Cushion, uh, an expert on internet policy. He spoke to us about National's latest gang policy to ban gang insignia from social media platforms and whether this was an effective approach to censoring harmful content online. And then finally, you just heard us talking to Andrew Johnston, the uh, local zoologist. legend zoologist uh, talking about the uh, Grand and Otago skink or Moko Moko. Uh, what a show. Uh, what a, what a, a what day a to be a news presenter. Definitely. Yep. That's I had fun. Did you have fun? I had fun. It awesome. was very cool. I learned a lot. I always do, which is the perks of doing news. And we hope that everyone listening learned a lot too. It's now time for us to go. So we are going to leave you with Hiatus Coyote with Get Sun. Kakitsu, everyone. Bye. That was a Radio 191 event podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.